Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Nick, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. Good to have you in Noosa. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, like you said, brought the weather with me. Um, it's a bit gloomy out there and it's been raining since I got here. But it's a lovely part of the world, mate. Yeah. Yeah. You've, um, have you always lived here? No, we've been here 20 years. Yeah, right. We're originally from Sydney. So okay. moved up here, saw the, saw the light <laughs> and moved up here in 2001, actually. So 20 years. Has it changed a lot since you've been here? Uh, it's certainly got a lot busier, but in terms of development and that kind of stuff, no, it hasn't changed a great deal. Obviously, property price has gone through the roof as they have everywhere, but um, it's got busier for sure. So that's mm. the only real issue. But as a local, you don't come down to the tourist areas at the tourist times. Yep. Plenty of other places the locals will go to. Um, and in non-holiday periods, yep. you know, obviously we come down here, no problems at all. Yeah. Because um, it some people, and forgive me if you haven't been to Noosa, it's one of Australia's most special spots, I would say. Um, but there's three, there's like three areas of Noosa. There's like here near Hastings Street, which is a really busy, it seems, touristy spot. Yep. Then you've got the, um, like the hub that's a little bit further back. Junction, Junk, is it? Noosa Junction. Junction. So that's where a lot of the locals would go. Yep. Yeah. And then along the, is it the estuary or the uh, river? The river. Yep. Gympie Terrace. Yeah. Gympie Terrace. And again, yeah. much, very much a local's jaunt along there. Yeah. But all three of them have wonderful restaurants, cafes. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. There's lots of fine dining, lots of great bars, uh, very kid friendly. Mm. Uh, you can set yourself up in a in a resort room and walk everywhere. Yeah, you know wherever that may be. Where do you go for holidays? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, normally, mm. we would go overseas. Yep. There's no point me living in Noosa and going somewhere like Bali. Wouldn't <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. Be smart. Um, but we would go skiing in Japan. We love going to the US, um, Europe, those kinds of things. You yeah. know, skiing in Japan would be one of our favourites. Yeah. Um, we were there just before everything closed down before COVID. Mm-hmm. In fact, we got back about a week before the borders closed, which was very good. Um, but yeah, it's all a bit hard traveling at the moment. So we'll just hang out here. Yeah. Um, Worst parts of the world. Yeah, We're going here. up to uh, Kimberley in a, in a few weeks. So something different, but yep. um, yeah, can't complain about being here. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, 
uh, yeah, there's a there's quite a few people that hail from Noosa on Twitter. Um, I'd say it, it seems like a great spot if you have been a successful investor over the years um, and you can work from anywhere. This is a great place to do it from. But mate, I let's get into the thicker things. We've spoken once before. Um, well, we've spoken more than once, but once publicly before for self wealth. Um, today. I'm hoping we can cover a bit of that ground, but also dive into more the philosophy and the process and some of the stuff you've been working on recently. And I thought just to start with the kind of the meatiest thing, one thing that you do, which is very unique amongst everyone that I've come across, is you publish like personally how you're going. So year to date, the last update that I saw, which I think was last week, I think you publicly disclosed on Twitter that you were down and year to date about 985k that's in that's this year and a lot of people see that and they think wow it's nearly a million dollars um one that's pretty bold of you like to just here i am this is what i'm doing um but i guess my question that comes from this is more so when you when you've done this for so long and we'll get to how you do it in just a moment but when you think about that for a moment, do you think of this as a way or something that maybe either a mistake I've made, something I need to fix, or is this just the part and parcel of long-term investing? So let's put it into context, the exercise that I've been doing this year. Um, I'm a big believer in that most people are influenced by the money side of this game. And if you can detach yourself from the money, which is ironic because the reason why mm. we do this is to make money, but if you can detach yourself from that and just allow the process to unfold in due course on its own, you'll be a lot more successful. It is clear to me for doing this for 37 years that people have a massive emotional reaction to losing money. Uh, I've met so many people that have no problems making money, but everybody has a problem losing money. Mm. And losing money is part of the game. Um, in some ways, I'm glad this year is a negative year um, because had it been like last year or the prior year, which were record years for me, I'm sure there would be a lot of people out there calling bullshit. But when you post the negative side of things, it's about detaching from the money and just allowing the process to go. Um, which brings us to your question, you know, is there a problem? Is there something to be fixed? There's nothing to be fixed. What's happened this year is well within expected. Mm. Um, okay, it's a million dollars, but you don't get to lose a million dollars unless you've made a lot in the past. And I've been doing this for a long time and I've been very lucky in that respect. If I was to post that I'd lost 5% of my equity, boring. Yeah. You know, boring. No one's interested in that go and post down a million dollars, all of a sudden, oh my God, this guy's crazy. In fact, I have got people calling me out on public forums saying it's clear he has no idea what he's doing, <laughs> which makes no sense. As I said, if I was 
trading a $20 million account. I'm a long-only investor. I'd be down 5% when the S&P is down 26%. I think that's a pretty damn good return. Mm. So the simple fact that I'm losing money, there's nothing to be fixed. Um, it is part and parcel of the journey. It is to be expected at some stage. It just happens to be happening this year. And I have no doubt everyone will know many fund managers, whether they be bond managers or equity managers, are getting absolutely crushed this year. Mm. And that's part and parcel. And I think without a shadow of doubt, the difference between an amateur and a professional, someone like me, is that a professional just goes, huh, it is what it is, and keep pushing the button, keep following the process, and I know over the longer term, I'll be perfectly fine, has, has been the case for the last 37 years, you know. I was there in 1987. I lost everything. I lost double my annual salary in 1987, and my father had to bail me out. Now, most people just give up. That was a lesson for me, and we keep pushing through. Got through the tech crash, got through 2008. 2008, I still remember it like it was yesterday. You know, I lost 13% that year, okay? It is what it is, and then went on to have a cracking 2009. So it's part of the journey. And the analogy I guess I like to use is, you know, you get stuck in a traffic jam. You know, we don't have to fix the car if we're stuck in a traffic jam. It's just what happens, you know, mm. or catching a red light when we're going from one side of the city to the other. There's nothing that needs to be fixed. It's just part of the journey. You just got to deal with it, move on, and you'll get back, you get back on track until your destination. Why did you start to do it? Why did you start to post publicly? Um... Yeah, I can't remember exactly why. Um, I've always posted my percentage returns. Mm, I remember. And or for the different portfolios. I, I'm i not quite sure why we decided to do the, or I decided to do the dollars. I think it was going to be more impactful, which it has been. Mm. Um, and I think that was probably the... One of the key reasons. I you think know? I remember you post that posting on Twitter about this, saying that it was, I could be mistaken, but maybe something to do with more like the emotional side of sure different in percentages. Like you said before, it yeah. means some one thing, but in dollars, it means something yeah. else. And the, it's kind of like shock and awe for a lot of people. They're like, wow, sure, you know. Well, the thing is, we relate dollars to our work ethic. Mm. Someone goes to work. They work a certain amount of hours and they get paid certain amount of money. Now, I don't know what the average wage is at the moment, 90 grand a year. I don't know. I'm not yep. in touch with that kind of stuff. But, you know, my account swings around 90 grand a day. Mm. So for someone going, hold on, I have to go to work for a whole year and this guy's losing 90 grand in a day or making 90 grand in a day or more. Um, you know, that's an, that's an attachment that people have to, and an emotional attachment they have to the money. And it's very important to remove that, you know, um, and follow the process because most people fail, you know. I've got a pretty good track record, I think, certainly not the world's best trader in any way, shape or form, but you can lay that track record out in front of somebody with all the evidence and they'll give it a go for three months and say, oh, no, this doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it doesn't suit their personality. It doesn't, suit their, uh, doesn't fit their risk appetite, whatever it may be. So you've got to find your own way in this. But I think the emotional attachment to the dollars is a significant hurdle for people to get over. 
Mm. Now, they think professional traders make money every day, every week, every month, every year. Well, that's totally incorrect, okay? Totally incorrect, um, and that's just ignorant thinking. You know, we are no different to everybody else. We have our ups and downs. Uh, the difference is being able to push through those down periods and coming out the other side. Mm. So we need to frame this conversation now, I think, to fill in the blanks of who you are and maybe even how you got to be in this position, right? To be even open with that conversation. So how did you come to be involved in, we'll say, investing, trading, the stock market, business, any of these type of kind of entrepreneurial capitalistic type tendencies? Was this something that um, you got from parents or from people around you, any mentors? Not at all. Um, my father, you know, he had a stock portfolio but would never discuss it. We didn't even – I had no interest in it. Uh, when I left school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I've never been to university. I don't have a degree. I'm completely self-taught. Um, my goal, I guess, at school was to catch a train into the city, work in a tall building and wear a suit. That was kind of it. You know, mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty good, pretty cool. And um, I, uh, a relationship I was in when I was at school um, or when I left school, uh, her brother-in-law worked at a big stockbroking firm um, and he asked me to just come on and push paper and um, I started doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I had no interest in trading, didn't even know really what it was. And I walked past the private client desk one day and it was a big open office in those days. This was back in 1985, 1985, yep. And there was a private client advisor. He was plotting the share price index futures on some chart paper uh, with some texters. And he was plotting a five-day and 10-day moving average crossover. Mm -hmm. And I sat there, I said, what are you doing? And he's going, oh, well, when this one, li this line crosses that, you buy. And when it crosses down, you sell. And I could see the trends in the market. I could see what he was doing. Mm. And it just kind of clicked. And by the end of the day, I'd gone downstairs to Penfold Stationery, got my own chart paper, a blue pen, a red pen, a black pen. <laughs> and I started just plotting this. And I started actually trading the share price index futures when I was hmm. 18, uh, back when it was $100 a tick. And <laughs> um, crazy, crazy to think of how bad that was. But there was nothing else. There was no risk management, no money management, no nothing. So, and hence why I blew up in 1987, but not for that reason. That was something else. But that's how I got started in it. And I guess um, it just became a passion. And I think... Anybody that's passionate about anything becomes good at it. Um, you know, essentially I got into trend following slash momentum right from the get-go. Uh, I've never been exposed to fundamentals or anything like that. I've never used them. And uh, it just went from there, really. Mm. And I, I think, you know, if you're passionate, you're going to find a way how to, to make it work for you. Are you able to elaborate on that 87 wipeout? Like what led you to that point so back in those days there used to be a two-week settlement when you bought or sold stock okay there was none of this instant transfer or anything like that you would literally get a contract note or whatever it was in the mail you would write a check 
post the check back, the check would be banked. When all that's done, you get the stock certificate. Hmm. So I befriended a guy in the script department that processed all of these stock certificates. And what was going back on the crazy days pre-87 or leading up to 1987 crash was that a lot of people buying stocks and realized they didn't have the money to actually pay for them. So there used to be a facility where uh, if someone didn't pay for them, that the script department could take on that stock and would then have to get rid of it. But mm-hmm. then I got involved and they said, well, you can have some of this. And back then stocks were moving around. So you'd be given stock XYZ that was bought two days ago and all you had to do was pay for it. But now it was, you know, 40 cents, 50 cents higher. So I thought, okay, well, I can sell it straight away. Hmm. Um, And of course, one thing led to another. Well, if I hold it for another two days, it's going to be another 20 cents higher or 50 cents higher. I've got two weeks to hold it. I didn't have to pay a cent. So I would just hold this stock, hold it, hold it, not pay a cent, make it a bomb. And then, of course, 1987 crash (laughs) came and I was holding everything and hadn't paid for a thing. And um, that's where I lost it all. So silly, (laughs) silly games. If I had stuck to the original strategy, I actually would have been short into 1987. I wrote an article about a year or so ago and rebuilt that same strategy that I had traded. Um, and whilst it doesn't work today, I would have actually been short through 1987 and made a lot of money. But um, <laughs> you le- live and learn, you know. Mm. So since let's take it from there, 1987, um, what would you say has been like a big, I guess, change in that time? So obviously computers, everything's gone online. Yeah. Uh, platforms have emerged but is it if we could? I, don't, I just don't know how to cover this period of, of your journey from '87 through to founding the Chartist, basically. Sure. So uh, what happened? Um, I this was a stockbroking firm, and they had a bond desk upstairs, and the bond desk had to hedge its portfolio using interest rate futures, which at the time were relatively new mm-hmm. and traded on the Sydney Futures Exchange down in O'Connell Street in Sydney. And my job was actually processing those futures trades for that bond desk upstairs, mm-hmm. nothing to do with equities. Anyway, we were uh, an associate member, so we had to deal through a full member to do that. And back then, the halcyon days, it, uh, they were looking for staff left, right and centre. So they approached me, doubled my salary <laughs> to go because they were just desperate for staff. Uh, and that's how I got onto the future side of things. Um, I was a young guy in an industry that back then, trading floors, all the hand signals, yep. all the yelling and shouting, it was an aggressive boys place. And so I did spend another couple of years pushing paper, but then went down onto the trading floor of the Sydney Futures Exchange. In fact, the first day um, I was down there was one of the most volatile days around. And um, yeah, it, uh, that's where it went. So I was down in the short-term interest rate in the bank bill pit mm-hmm. uh, down there for about four or five years. Then I went up to the international dealing desk 
And from there, uh, one of my mentors, she said to me, if you want to make a go of this, you've got to go overseas. Australia is just a small, a small place. Mm -hmm. So I gave them a year's ultimatum, said, I want to go and work overseas. And one year to the day, I said, all right, see you later. I went to London. So <laughs> took the family to London, got a job with HSBC, set up a desk over there. Spent a year there, then got transferred to Singapore, had a couple of years in Singapore. And that's when I really started getting involved with hedge funds and systematic trading, proper systematic trading from what I'd been doing. Um, and then I set up my own hedge fund, which was in 1998. And we used to um, follow trends in commodity markets. So a commodity trading advisor. Um, and in 2001, that was rolled into a big bank here in Australia. And um, the whole idea was that we would manage money using my strategies uh, for that bank, but it all went a bit pear-shaped. So we started the Chartist in 2005. and. That's where we're at today. Mm. You've been going strong since. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of ground covering to cover there. Um, you made a dis uh, like a I guess a distinction there of proper systematic trading. Mm. Can you define what that is? So I guess the styles of trading you could have out there would be classified as discretionary, and that's probably what most fundamental people are doing. They're reading into a story they're mm -hmm. trying to put some kind of evaluation onto a company and then deciding at what point that would be a good buy or sell whatever it may be that is essentially discretion it's a skill if you like of the manager or the investor mm -hmm. uh, then you would have what's called what we'd probably call something like rule-based so that's when you might have a fundamental investor that have, would have quite specific criteria that they would follow. And if, if that criteria was not met, then that investment would not be considered. Um, and that would go all the way through to the buying point. You might say, right, valuation is X dollars. We're only going to buy if the share price falls 15% below that valuation. Uh, and we will sell when the share price gets back to its valuation price. Mm. So that would be a rules-based. But you can then take that one step further, which is what I do and a very small group of people do around the world, and we would be called completely systematic or quant, if you like. So we are actually programming mathematical algorithms into the computer, all rules, there is no discretion. There's no Nick Raj thinks this. There's none of that. Mm. And it does everything. It decides on how much risk to take, um, how much allocation to each stock, how many stocks in the portfolio, everything. And the benefit of doing this is that we can take these hard rules and go back in history and say, had I followed these rules... How much money would I make or lose? What would the journey look like? And that's exactly what we do. You know, we're not basing our investment decisions on old motherhood statements yeah. or what they teach about efficient market theory or at universities with that kind of stuff. We are looking for science, if you like. Um, and so that's what we do. And it gives me great confidence and especially times like now, 
where there's a drawdown. And I can tell you, this is to be expected. It, it is no surprise to me that we're going through this drawdown. Did I know it was going to happen this year? No, didn't know it was going to happen, but I knew it happened at some stage. And I can also tell you it's well within the bounds of what is to be expected. And that's important because you need to be able to accept the downside in order to get the upside. You can't just have all upside. Mm. Again, if we go back to the analogy about traveling across the city, you need to stop it. You need to stop at red lights. It's, and you've got to stay on the left-hand side of the road because that's the rules. And it's the same when we're doing this. You know, you, you know what the journey is going to entail and you accept it. Well, you should accept it. Mm. If you do accept it, then you just simply keep on following. And that's why I can continue to push the buttons and be reasonably unemotional about it because, hey, I knew it was going to happen. Mm. Before we get to your investment philosophy and process and how you design these systems, um, tell us a bit about the Chartist. Like, Why did you set up the Chartist in particular, going from hedge fund to like memberships and these yep. types of things? It's a good a question. So the bank who shall remain nameless at this stage, um, <laughs> that we rolled the hedge fund into. Um, they had 44 fundamental analysts and no technical analysts. And I had built quite a big business on back of the technical approach that we were taking. Mm. Uh, not only had I built a big business, but it was also a very scalable business. In other words, I didn't have to ring people and tell them a story about a stock that they needed to buy and go through all the fundamentals and send them the research. It was, here's what the strategy does, you in or you're out, you mm. know? And so it was quite scalable and we got good results. Um, but there was certainly a demand for classic technical analysis. And that's where the charters came in because back then there was none of what we have today. Uh, today, you know, there's a lot of um, information out there that's technical based. That wasn't the case back then. So we thought there was a, a gap in the market that we could offer a proper technical research portal mm -hmm. and then people could get their fundamental analysis from their brokers or their research houses and then they could get a technical overlay from us. So it might be that the analyst at their brokerage is bullish BHP mm. fundamentally, then they could come to us and we'd say, yeah, bigger picture, we're bullish BHP. However, in the near term, we think there's going to be continued weakness. And as a result, you'll get yourself a better buying opportunity. So the whole idea was to line up the technicals and the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Or conversely, if you had a stock that was considered fundamentally way above value, most fund managers on that respect will just sell it for the sake of selling it, we would say, well, let's keep riding this position and we'll use a trailing stop and see how far it can go. And that's when you get these big winners, these big outliers coming along. Classic example would be Tesla back in 2020. I think my original buy price in that was $41 or $51. And I remember buying it again at $200 and $250 and people saying you're absolutely stupid and it just kept on going all the way up to $700. Um, it turned down, don't get me wrong, but when it turns down, we just hop off that ride. And so that's the whole idea. Fundamentally, it might be way overpriced, but we know it can go a lot further both ways. Um, AMP fundamentally is worth a lot more 
than what it's currently trading at. That's not to say it's ever going to get to that value and it's not to say it can't go lower, but now certainly not the time to buy it. Um, and that's what the technicals kind of give you, that direction in terms of now's the time to buy or now's the time to sit on the sidelines. When you started the business, um, how did you find the reception to it? So customers and members joining, was it new to them? Well, obviously, it sounds like it was, wasn't as prevalent. It's certainly technical analysis in Australia is a very small field. If you go to the US, totally different. Mm. Like all stockbroking firms, all financial planning firms in the US, uh, banks, investment banks, hedge funds, they all have technical analysis departments. Mm. It's quite remarkable, the difference. Um, but in Australia, technical analysis is really um, a foray for retail investors, if you like. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, one of the banks I originally worked with when I was on the trading floor, uh, the foreign exchange department had their own analyst, the treasury department had their own technical anal analysts, and our department had our own technical analyst. But that was very rare. Very, very rare. And you certainly would not find that now. I, I'm assuming it would be almost unheard of mm. now. It's interesting because we obviously have systematic and quant funds, right? Um, like you said, CTAs um, are part of the alternative universe. Yep. Um, but they, it's kind of almost with them, it's more like a black box, isn't it? It's more like it's not really like it. you're more – transparent in how you do things how you go about things but when you get the the ctas it almost seems from the outside at least it seems like a black box like they give you the this is the pitch but it's not always like this is actually how it's implemented this is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis whereas you've kind of brought that to a bigger audience it seems so a black box would be defined as um, a strategy where the rules are simply not disclosed at all hmm. so a lot of the strategies that we operate at the Chartist and the ones I personally trade would be considered to an outsider as a black box. Uh, as I wrote in my newsletter article just this week, I've spent 37 years researching this stuff. I'm not going to go and yeah. give away everything for free. Okay, yep. There's certain things I ain't giving away for any amount of money. Yep. Um, but there's other things that I'm more than happy to give away, and I do give away a lot. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I could, as as the famous turtles once said, you know, I could give you the rules, but do you think you could actually do it? Exactly right. You know, I think the the psychological fortitude to follow without question, especially when things get tough, is beyond the ability of probably 98% of the population. Mm. So you could literally give someone the rules. But uh, could they continue? Probably not. Mm. How do you then, how do you go about, so a lot of the listeners of the show are fundamentally driven. Yep. Or just macro uh, in their approach. How do you go about testing, implementing and being agile? Like specifically, how do you implement these strategies in, in you know, a testing environment versus production? It's a very new ground to a lot of listeners. So there's no fundamentals in what I do at all. Yep. I simply look at price, 
volatility and volume or turnover. That is it. Mm -hmm. That is the basis of all the different strategies that I trade. I'm a big believer in trading multiple strategies over multiple timeframes in different markets. Even within the same market, for example, I'll have a strategy that trades the ASX 100, and then I'll have other strategies that trade smaller caps um, or the medium caps, whatever. And that's because certain parts of the market can at times um, operate at different levels. Um, so in terms of the testing environment, the majority of what I do is momentum or trend following based. And mm -hmm. that comes back to a very basic um, mathematical equation called positive expectancy. Positive expectancy, every single investor on the planet has an expectancy. Mm -hmm. If they have a positive expectancy, they're profitable. If they have a negative expectancy, they're they're losers, even Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to how often you win and how much you win when you win. That's it, mm. all right? All the rest is just really garbage. So there's certain parts of that that you can control and there's certain parts of that equation you can't control. I cannot control what position is going to be a winner or not. What I can control is how much I lose if that position doesn't go in my favor. I can't control how much profit I make out of that, but what I can control is how much I lose. So if I keep those losses to a very small amount, but when the winners come, I let them go and go and go as far as they want to go, then those winners will out, outperform the losers over time. Let's just use basic mathematics. Let's say we do 10 transactions. Let's say I'll get five right and five wrong. For the average punter in the street, sounds like a loser's game, okay? But I'll take that any day because the five I get wrong, I might lose $1 on, but the five I get right, I'll average $3 profit. Net, net, I'm profitable, and that's all I've got to do. So over the longer term, my win rate is around 50% but the average profitable trade is three times the average losing trade, and that's the positive expectancy. And it doesn't matter. I've not talked about how we do things. That doesn't matter. Everybody, regardless of how they trade, will come down to those certain numbers. Um, and that's what it all comes down to. It's really just mathematics. Hmm. The only thing we're doing somewhat differently is we're actually taking the rules of the strategy and hard coding them into a computer back-testing those over time. Obviously, what goes into the computer needs to be robust, the old garbage in, garbage out. If you want to feed the computer garbage and lie to it, well, it's going to lie back to you. So our strategies need to be reasonably simplistic. They need to be tested and stress-tested across different market environments, and they need to be validated over different universes. So, for example... I can take a strategy, let's say I take a strategy that I build for the All Ordinaries Index, say 500 stocks. Mm -hmm. I should be able to take that strategy and put it on the S&P 500 stocks, sight unseen, and it should be reasonably okay. Okay, if I take, if I take a strategy that trades the All Ordinaries universe and I put it on the S&P 500 and it completely fails, then there's a problem. 
And the other thing we don't do is we don't trade strategies on individual stocks. If someone says to you, I've got this strategy that trades Westpac or I've got this strategy that trades Tesla, you've just got to run in the other direction because it just means it's been optimized for that particular um, stock or symbol. Mm. Um, over time, markets change. They they change in all sorts of different ways. Classic example, back in the 90s, the Japanese yen used to be a beautiful trending um, market. You know, big uptrends, big downtrends, beautiful to trade, and the British pound was dreadful. Today, it's the opposite. British pound is beautiful, Japanese yen, not so much so. So markets change over time, and you have to adapt to that change, and that's normal. Um, but if you focus on one particular instrument and you don't adapt, then it's going to fall over in time. So robustness is very, very important. Are there particular markets that you've found over the years doing this that simply you there hasn't been that efficacy and conversely markets that have worked well or that you tend to focus on, like say the US market, the Aussie market, anything in particular? So the only real thing that I've kind of – and we – we sort of figured this out back in about 1999, um, around then, 1998. We started to realize that higher institutionalized markets, i.e. the US, don't tend to trend as well as the Australian or Canadian markets, which are the ones we follow. And uh, I'll throw it out there that they, because they're highly institutionalized and what i mean by that let's take i think something like bhp biggest stock in australia as an example would have 18 analysts following it mm. um, that would be the most you'd go down to the banks you've probably got 15 analysts and you, further down you go you get to stocks that you know have seven or eight analysts and write down you don't have to go too far once you get out of the asx 200 you've probably got four or five analysts following stocks right whereas in the us very different top stocks have got 60 70 analysts following them um, even in the top 500 stocks you still got 30 40 analysts following all the stocks so they tend to be a lot more institutionalized obviously the us market is highly capitalized mm. australia is just a dot in the ocean um, and as a result my belief is that they're considerably more efficient in their pricing than what Australian stocks and Canadian stocks would be for that matter. So as a result, Australia and Canadian stocks tend to trend uh, a lot more on their own. Um, US markets in general tend to trend, don't get me wrong, but different styles of strategy uh, will help you capture those trends, if you like, in Australia and in the US. Coming back to process for a moment, um, obviously, you know, there are some there are state secrets that uh, are kept behind locked doors, mm. but could you give us a sense of two things? One being when you create these systematic approaches, how many variables or factors, you said it, you prefer to be simple, mm. um, but how many, just as a general broad strokes um, comment, how many variables or factors might go into one of those strategies? And then I know that you have various strategies that have different timeframes as well. Mm. So I guess another question that flows from that is like, what's the turnover as well? Sure. So if we just look at some of the simplest strategies in terms of uh, parameters, you're talking maybe three rules. Right. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Very simple. Rough and ready 
And rough and ready means that there's going to be bumps in the journey, but it means it's robust, okay? We will have the exact same, we'll say we've got a thousand stocks in our universe, every single stock gets traded exactly the same way with the exact same parameter settings. It's not like, right, these ones get traded with this and those ones get traded with that. Or we don't go through those thousand and say, right, we're going to trade these nine stocks using the rule. Yep. It doesn't work. Okay. Now, that may not be the optimal way to go, but it's the most robust way to go. So to give you an idea of the importance of robustness, because markets change over time, the more robust, the more variability the strategy has to adapt. So a strategy that I developed back in the 90s, I still trade today. Right. I've made a couple of small changes, but for all intents and purposes, it's the exact same strategy. Indeed, that strategy, I started trading it on futures and now I trade it on stocks, exactly the same. So that's what the longevity is. So simple is better. Um, you know, some of the strategies might have five parameters, but that's pretty well it. No mm -hmm. more than that. So you might have two or three entry criteria uh, and then you might have one or two exit criteria and that's it. Hmm. So that's, um, so I guess the natural inclination is that we hear you say you've been doing this for 30 plus years, that things would have to get more complicated as time goes on. Right? Okay. I guess that's kind of like the intuitive sense is that, well, everyone else has figured it out, you know, and we're... We have to stay ahead of that curve time and time again. I think I heard you say once before that one thing you do to test some of your strategies is you get like a data set of the stock market over 10 or 20 years, and then you'll just randomize it and then apply the strategy. Is that correct? Yeah. So part of the stress testing criteria that we do is, is you know, there's a lot of things that we do. So one of the things, one of the basic things is we'll build a strategy in, say, the Russell 1000. And then we'll go and test it on the Russell 2000, which is a completely different universe of stocks. Hmm. It's not going to be precisely the same, but if it holds up, you're onto something because you've got a whole set of data there that has not been looked at. We haven't peeked at the data. Um, so there's no curve fitting or data mining or anything kind of going on. Or as I said before, we could take it from the ASX 500 and put it on the S&P 500, something like that. Um, other things we can do. So once, once you've looked at a set of data, you will have a natural bias to create a system in relation, even if you're not aware of it, you are actually doing it. So once you've looked at it, a purist would say, well, you've looked at the data, it's no good anymore. So what we'll then go and do is, let's say our strategy uses the opening price to enter and the opening price to exit. What we'll do is we'll randomize the opening price by say 3% and then run it again and then do it again and again and again. And then we'll randomize the highs and the lows and the closes, whatever it may be. Or we'll randomize the, the entry criteria by you know 2 to 3%. So the whole idea is to understand if the market changes a little bit, what will, what will the impact have on the strategy? And if it doesn't have a great deal of impact, um, then you're probably onto something. And I guess that comes down to the fact that we're trying to disprove the strategy. Mm. We're trying to break it. If we can't break it, if we can throw all these different things at it and still it holds up, mm. then we're probably onto something that's robust. Mm. Um, I guess one of the things that 
I think of when I think of all this is, um, I guess, the rep replicability by people that say subscribe to the Chartist. Mm -hmm. um, and do they, I guess the question, the natural question is, um, do they have to learn how to code in order to implement these strategies? No. no. The whole idea of the Chartist is for busy folks who want to use a proven strategy, who want to tap into someone with my experience uh, and they don't have the time or inclination to learn it for themselves. So we trade personally, Trish and I trade all the strategies that we offer to our clients in the charter subscription service ourselves. So our money is straight down the line with them. We take the exact same trades. It's fully disclosed. Um, so there's no coding. All you've got to do is follow along. You just set up a, an account with your chosen broker. And then all we're doing is giving you the buy and sell signals. And we're giving you how many stocks to buy in that portfolio or how many shares to buy of a particular stock and also how many stocks to have in the portfolio. Granted, some clients would add a little bit of discretion to that. Uh, for example, I know one client who's been with us for 10 plus years. Uh, he, I think, subscribes to Stock Doctor as well. And he uses their rankings or their ratings um, to help. So he'll take our signals mm -hmm. and then he'll look at the ratings from Stock Doctor and say, right, if it's a health company, I'll take it. If it's an unhealthy company, I won't take it. Right. I don't think it's going to make any difference to his bottom line, but if it makes him that more comfortable to execute the strategy, then over the longer term, he's going to be a lot better off than doing nothing whatsoever. Mm. How about then in terms of, say, someone that's a bit more enterprising and they want to understand how to do back tests? Like, say for myself, I would describe myself as like a rookie programmer, right? Like, I enjoy learning about technology and things that are emerging. Um, if you were starting out, because I think, you know, it's a family business, right? Yes. And the next generation's involved. Yes. And um, computer science isn't going away anyway. No. So if you were giving advice to someone who may be starting out where you were starting out in your career now, what are the types of skills that you would learn? So we offer about six or seven years ago, we created the trading system uh, mentor course. And that was designed for people who wanted to do it themselves. They wanted, they didn't want to rely on me. They wanted to learn how to do it for themselves and be completely independent. And interestingly, a lot of those people are uh, people who early retirees, successful business people, a lot of pilots, engineers. Oh, right. Okay, obviously. Yeah. Because um, they want to know what their, their plane is not going to fall out of the sky. They want to know that everything's working. Yeah. So um, we teach them over a six-month period of time, one-on-one, -on -one, how to code properly, how to build strategies, how to test them, how to stress test them, and even right up to how to implement them. Right. So they can become completely independent. And so uh, the people who have gone through that course, we don't force any trading strategy on them. It's up to them to design and build their own trading strategy, whatever it may be. And everybody is different. And that's why we allow them to do their own thing. Because mm. if a trading strategy doesn't fit your personality, you're not going to be able to execute it. Uh, some of these strategies are longer term in nature, like they trade once a month and hold position for months on end. Others are day trade strategies. They're in and out in a day. But the whole idea is that we teach them how to do it properly and then they have the skills to go away and do that. Do you think, um, you know, one of the things that people get caught out by is they see you know, they can go and 
YouTube or search the internet, see even you know Google ads, these trading strategies, people talking about dollar values, money made, et cetera, et cetera. How do people identify who is genuine in the trade and the craft and who is not? Yeah, it's, it's a scary thing about today, isn't it? Because when I learned to trade, there was no such thing as the internet. You know, we're going back to the 80s. Mm. To give you an idea, um, there was no trading books in bookstores. The Sydney Futures Exchange did have a little bit of a library and, and some technical books in there. But for me to buy a trading book back then, I had to um, fill out a coupon in a magazine, post it to the US. They would send me a catalogue. I'd have to choose what I wanted to buy, post it back. Six weeks later, seven weeks later, I got my book. So, you know, it was a 12, 13 week round turn to, to actually get the book. And this day and age, you're absolutely right. Um, I can name people that put themselves out there as experts, and I know for a fact they do not trade at all. Um, how someone overcomes that, I don't know. The one thing I would suggest um, is in Australia that someone who has uh, an AFSL, an Australian Financial Services Licence. Mm. You can't just go and fill out a form and get one of them, okay? It requires a certain amount of experience. It requires um, a, a business sense. Uh, you've got to report to ASIC. You have to be audited. Uh, you're about as legitimate as you possibly could be if you have an AFSL. Someone that doesn't have an AFSL, I'm not necessarily saying that they're they're being a scammer or anything like that, but you just don't know. Yeah. Um, I can't say things in the public arena. I can't have things on my website um, that uh, ASIC don't allow. You know, there's certain things I can and can't say, whereas a scammer can kind of say anything. You know, uh, I reported a website the other day. It, it said your classic, you know, annualized returns of 100%. We guarantee you'll lose no more than 10%, blah, 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 blah. It's, you know, those kinds of things I cannot say. It's totally against the law and ASIC will just shut me down straight away with that. Mm. Um, other things, for example, I have to have my business address on the front of my website. I have to have my AFSL number on the front of the website. It's got to be there. You've got to have risk disclosures. Conversation the other day, someone said, oh, all these people uh, saying past performance is not indicative for future performances, they're just saying that to protect their own asses. I'm sorry, it's actually the law. Mm. You have to have that. It's the law. And if someone is operating a business, financial business, and doesn't have that, they are not operating within the realms of the law or they're not licensed. Mm. So it is very difficult. And there is a lot of scammers out there, like there is in every business. Um, you know, I, I think... It's it's a difficult one to overcome, mm. you know. Oh, for every one that pops up, there's another one. That's Ten others. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, then, okay. Then, uh, where do you think um, new traders go wrong? I think new traders don't have a strategy. Full stop. That would probably be the number one. They might think they have something in their head. Mm. They might be relying on some kind of a motherhood statement. Buy low, sell high, that's not a strategy. Um, and even if they had some kind of a strategy that or something that appeared to be a strategy, it's not proven. You need to prove it. You need to test it. You need to actually quantify it. 
to give you an idea, back in the early 90s, um, the book that really changed my life was uh, a book called Patent Probability Strategy by Curtis Arnold, uh, or the PPS Strategy. And it was a book based on various chart patterns, and he built rules around the chart patterns. So we would call this a rule-based strategy rather than a proper systematic one. And for one year, I spent about four hours, three or four hours a day going through charts, plotting all these trades by hand before I even made one trade. For 12 months, I did that every <laughs> single day, including weekends. And uh, only then had I validated it, was I able to go and pull the trigger with confidence. I think my first year I made 40% return. So that was, uh, that was very good. So even if someone comes up with a rule-based strategy, they've got to validate it. Mm. So doing that with a computer makes that very quick now. You know, you can, you can write some rules up, um, put them through the computer, test it on good data, not cheap data, good data, and um, get a very good understanding of, of what's good about it, what's wrong about it, and away you go. And mm. that's where I think everyone would fall over. They're just punting. Mm. Anyone that doesn't have a strategy is just gambling. That's all it comes down to. Nothing mm. more than that. There's, there's no skill involved. Mm. Um, so, Nick, a personal question is, you, know, you live here in Noosa. Yeah. Bring it back to Noosa. You've got a boat, right? You go out yeah. on a boat um, into powerlifting and weights and all that. Olympic of, lifting. Olympic yeah. lifting, yeah. And CrossFit, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got your family here. It's sunny most of the time. Mm. Um why do you still do what you do? Because from the outside, it seems like financially secure as well. Yeah. Well, you could always ask Tiger Woods, why does, you know, let's look at Tiger Woods. The guy's a billionaire. Hmm. But the amount of money he's made from the actual physical activity of playing golf is about 15% of what he does. Um, you know, the rest of the money is sponsorships and all that kind of stuff. Why does he keep doing it? It's a passion. It's not about the money, you know. It's not about the money. I've been semi-retired for for quite some time, you know, probably 15 years or so semi-retired. Mm. Um, the discussion on full retirement has been on the agenda for a couple of years. But the question is, what am I going to do? You know, this is – and someone, oh, you go and play golf every day or, you know, you go fishing every day. Yeah, nah, you know, it's <laughs> – Everyone else is at work. That's the thing, right? Um, you've got to keep busy. And I'm not saying I sit there for 12-hour days. I certainly don't. Mm. You know, it's a very relaxed lifestyle and we've built the whole business about a work-life balance. Even the staff that work for us, same kind of thing. They all work from home. They can go and do whatever they want to do during the day. So long as they get their daily work done, doesn't matter. I don't care what else they do. If they want to go paddle boarding in the middle of the day, I don't care. Mm. Um but I get a buzz from helping people. I really do. Um, you know, especially with something like the mentor course, when someone builds a strategy, starts making money, and they go, wow, this is amazing. Uh, when you get someone saying, gosh, I wish I'd met you 15 years ago or whatever. So, you know, you can actually change people's lives doing that, and that gives me a buzz. Um, but, you know, it's not like I spend 12 hours a day. I don't, I'm not mm. commuting into the city and wearing a suit and sitting behind a desk for 15 hours and doing what some of my peers do. You know, that's not what we do. 
Um, and I enjoy it still, don't get me wrong. We manage our own family money. Um, uh, and that's going to be passed on. And, you know, one of the first things our sons joined the business a couple of years ago, and the mm -hmm. first thing he had to do, uh, and he's the computer science genius, he had to um, develop his own trading strategy. And we funded that, and he's going really, really well with it. He's never traded before. He's outperforming the market quite nicely. I think he's up 15% or something this year, so he's actually making money. <laughs> should, we, should getting, we listen to what he's doing? That's right. <laughs> where his old man's getting hammered. But, you know, he'd never traded before. And he's 26, and um, you know, to to pass that on is is great, yeah. uh, and to pass it on to other people is great. Mm. You know, to to get that um, independence. What about? Um, I know there's been some murmurs on Twitter of things that you've been working on lately. Um, can you share with us today what you've been working on? So the main thing we've been working on um, is getting back into managing money again. So I stopped managing money back in 2016, uh, various reasons behind that, mainly the, the company that I was being helped with that was uh, sold and they stopped that side of the business. But um, getting back into it again, uh, the industry is changing a lot. Um, when I say the industry, I mean the financial planning industry. Mm. I'm not involved in the financial planning industry. I'm not a financial planner. But um, because of the PI insurance issues that are going on, which is how we originally how we, met, yeah. that's right, um, that whole industry is changing. Uh, insurance companies don't want advisors out there on their own, um, saying do this, do that. They want a proper mandate and uh, they want it, I don't know how to put it, you know, structured if you like. So what's going on is a lot of these financial planning firms are creating MDA structures and we're becoming involved in an offering with what we do. We are not a uh, long-only equities manager. And the reason being is because we have a mandate to go to 100% cash, which we basically are now. Some of our strategies have been in cash all year. Hmm. So our US momentum strategy, it's down half a percent for the year, whereas the S&P 500 is down 26%. So as a result, we are considered an alternate manager because a proper equities manager can't go to 100% cash. Hmm. But the important thing is obviously taking that defensive stance. Uh, and more importantly, we become completely uncorrelated. You know, just look what's going on now. Equities are gone pear-shaped. Bonds are gone pear-shaped. We're completely uncorrelated because we're sitting in cash. Um, and that's a good place to be. Um, difficult for some people, but, you know, back in 2008, mid-2008, when we went to cash, a lot of people pushed back. Said, what are we paying you for? Hmm. It was only until late 2008, early 2009, when the market was down 50%. And they're going, gee, that was actually a pretty good idea doing that. Obviously, financially, you save money, but your psychological fortitude is a lot stronger and enables you to get back involved when things come good again, you mm. know. So the managed accounts, I'm very excited about that. I guess, you know, coming back to why you're doing it, well, that's kind of perked me back into it a little bit. We certainly have demand for that mm. and we'll be running a, uh, a multi-strategy approach that will get investors involved in the Australian and the US markets. Um, so we're looking forward to that. It's going to be a very high growth strategy, not for everybody, 
Um, and it's at this stage only going to be for wholesale investors. Yeah, wholesale only, which is, um, I mean, if you are a wholesale investor listening to this, you know what you're talking, you know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but it's it's easier for you to to do it that way. I'm, I'm sure. Um, mate, if people wanted to hear more from you, if they wanted to um, learn more from you, where, what are the places that they could go to find you? Where, where can they go? So our major website is thechartist.com.au. Uh, we've got a free weekly newsletter. Um, you sign up to that and it comes out on Fridays. It's always informational stuff we put out there. Um, that would be the main place to get in contact with me and see what we do. We do have a, a two-week complimentary trial to, to what we offer. Uh, we do have other websites, nickranch.com. Uh, we've got another one called Trade Long Term, which is an aggressive US strategy that we built specifically for US investors. All of these strategies, Trish and I personally invest in right beside our clients, which is which is transparency, I guess. Um, so yeah, through the chartist.com.au would be the best place to find me. Mm-hmm. And you're also on Twitter. And on Twitter at the chartist. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I'll put all the links in the show notes. Well, Nick, thanks. Um, thanks for taking time to come out here on your Monday night after hours. Come visit me, talk about trading. I really appreciate it. It's been good. Thanks for having me, Owen. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.